This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Crime Podcast. Steve Keogh, welcome back to British Murders. Thank you for agreeing to come on the show. Wasn't this your idea or was this my idea? It's definitely your idea. No, I think I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's your idea. But, you but were... I really I, but I appreciate you inviting me on, Stu. Yeah. It's, you, did, um... you did send me the book, though, which I really do appreciate. I've got the book here. If anyone's watching, you can see it. It's Murder Investigation Team, which was the title of the first book. Subtitle on this one Jack the Ripper, a 21st mm. century, century investigation. The first question I'm going to ask, why Jack the Ripper? So when I was, when I left the police, I've, I've, I've done different things. I've dabbled in this and dabbled in that. I wasn't sure which direction I was going to go in. And I did a bit of YouTube. Um, and basically I was putting some videos up around murder investigation and how it's really done, etc. And a lot of my subscribers were American. And they kept asking me about Jack the Ripper. So I thought I would look into it and put some videos up. And when I started researching it, there's one thing that really jumped out at me, um, for me personally. So the, the case was the leading investigator, lead detective, was a man by the name of Frederick Aberline. He was a detective inspector. And when I started to look at his career, it really mirrored, mirrored mine. So basically, I spent the last 12 years of my career investigating murder um, under the umbrella of Scotland Yard. Um, and he was a detective inspector from Scotland Yard investigating murder. Now, the reason he got put to investigate the case is beforehand, he was working in Whitechapel where the murder was, ha- was were happening. He did about 14 years there. And before I was investigating murder, I worked in Whitechapel. Then before he was at Whitechapel, he investigated terrorism, and it was Fenian Irish terrorism. And before I went to Whitechapel, I investigated terrorism, but mine was Islamic. So our our careers really kind of followed a a, a similar path. And that just sparked my brain into, well, what would I do if I were in his place? And would I do anything different? How does it compare? And that's where the book really just stemmed from, sort of that 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 was the seed that that it grew from. When did Abilene pass away? Something like 1929. So that's a good... He got a good pension, put it that way. Yeah. What's that? 80, 88 to 29. That's what, 41 years? That's, I'd, I'd be happy with that. <laughs> so when, my question is, do you believe in reincarnation, Steve? Because maybe you are Abilene <laughs> reincarnated for the modern I've never day. thought of that. Yeah, who knows? I could, I could well be. You could be. Have you ever made a decision and you're not sure why? Maybe it was influenced by the ghost of Abilene. Well, this is taking a turn I wasn't expecting, Stu. <laughs> it just came to my head. I was like, what am I talking about? I spoke to a couple of paranormal people on here before, so maybe that's uh, not recently, but a few years ago. For some right. context, by the way, if you want to know more about Steve's career, we discussed that when you came on previously to discuss your first book. So if you want a bit of background on Steve, we've also done the, the Crime Con thing. We did the London 7-7, which was that hotel is basically in Whitechapel, right? Is mm. that the area it was in? Yeah, literally a a stone's throw from where these crimes happened, yeah. Really bizarre. So have you been to the Jack the Ripper Museum? Because I went there when I arrived on the Friday, and I was a little bit underwhelmed. Yeah, I've not done the museum. I've done done the Jack the Ripper tour, which was nice, because it puts 
I think I think as human beings, we like to so it means more. It's more real when you visit a place, isn't it, than just reading it in a book. I think there's a real danger when with Jack the Ripper that it can become more of a story than actually it. They were crimes. They were horrific crimes that happened to real people. And I think sometimes because of the sort of the 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 the, the mystique around the whole case, it can almost feel more like an Agatha Christie novel than actually true crimes that it was. Do you think there would be as much interest in this case if we knew who Jack the Ripper was? No. No, I think that's what I adds to the mystique. I mean, there are, certain, there are a number of things. Um, so this was the first real serial killer that, that was talked about worldwide. Um, then he gets that name, Jack the Ripper, which just adds to it, doesn't it? I mean, if you, it, there's, there's, I don't know if um, your listeners would know, but just the, the name come about from a letter that was sent into a news agency. Um, the press press agency um, and signed off Jack the Ripper and it just stuck from there. And I think almost as if he didn't even have that name, it might not have um, still be spoken mm-hmm. about today because he would be known as the Whitechapel murderer, which doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? And all the things that have sprung up from Jack the Ripper's, like a song by LL Cool J, um, uh, I think there's a drug, cannabis, uh, named I mean, there's, there's a train line. There's just so much called Jack the Ripper. And it wouldn't, if it was a Whitechapel murder, it wouldn't have the same um, appeal, would it? It makes sense. I think part of the mystique for me as not a history buff, but a fan of history is, mm-hmm. you know, it occurred in Victorian Britain, which is a fascinating time because it's so far removed from modern day. One thing I found interesting is that in my head, for whatever reason, I had it that Jack the Ripper had five murder victims. But in this, you're sort of alluding to there's potentially more that could be linked. Is that right? Is that the angle you've gone for here? Yeah, so I've come into it completely open-minded, as if I was, as if this were an re- investigation I was investigating today. Uh, there's a lot of investigations there, but you know what I mean. Um, so what I didn't want to be was influenced by people in the past. And there's a, there's a famous book out by, um, I can't remember the lady's name, um, uh, called the Five, and th- th- that's based on the fact that historians, I think, is where it's come from mostly. Potentially, police at the time call them the canonical five. The five of the murders that are attributed to Jack the Ripper, but the file that the police investigated consisted of eleven murders. So, and there is some controversy over which ones he actually committed. So, what I wanted to do was come into it completely afresh not be influenced by other people's thoughts and apply modern day thinking to the crimes and to see, well, which ones, if I was investigating this now, evidentially, which ones would I be able to attribute to the same person? And that's the way I've approached it. Is there any chance that these murders weren't committed by the same person? Of the 11, undoubtedly, he he didn't commit all 11. Undoubtedly, there were there were there were other um, suspects that would have committed them. Um, well, I don't want to spoil canonical it. five. Then, obviously, without spoiling it, yeah, I don't want to spoil <laughs> it. But I, I don't believe the canonical five are all down to him either. That's interesting. So you mentioned there that the serial killer, he's kind of like the first, especially in Britain, right? And there's so many theories as to who this person was. Some people think it was. H.H. H. Holmes, I think, who was an American killer. It was briefly in Britain at the time. Some people think it was a, a woman killer. You know, you had the historical poisoners back in the day. Part of the mystique is that we don't know who it is. Mm. Is the other part of that mystique because 
of someone thought to have committed multiple murders, which up until that point was quite unheard of. Yeah, I think that has a huge part to play in it. And also as well, it, it coincided with a, an era in, in the UK. So around 20 years before Jack the Ripper murders, there was um, a, a law was introduced that children had to go to school between a certain age. And what that meant was the it, it increased the literacy rate. So I think, it, I can't remember the figure now off the top of my head, it's something like 97% of um, the population in the UK in, 19, in, in 1888 were considered um, literate, so they could read. So what that meant was there was a booming newspapers. People were getting their information from newspapers, which kind of, it, all, it was almost like a perfect storm. It all come together at the same time. And so historically, what you would have is the broadsheet, so the Times type of newspapers that were aimed at people from, say, middle class. But then you had newspapers that were more aligned to our current day tabloids that were more sensationalized and were aiming at a different um, demographic. And it was it was that boost in newspaper sales and suddenly people were getting access to news that I think as well increased the the thirst for uh, more information about the killers and that sort of all boosted it and it made it worldwide. Um, so like I say it was a perfect perfect storm for all, for everything to come together. The first one really that was known of, of these murders the ferocity they were all committed in quite a close timeline um the small area the name jack the ripper the fact he wasn't caught all of it come together and and i don't think it was just you can just say one reason why we're still talking about him today but all that brought together is is the reason we are will this ever be solved as in finding out the true identity do you think too much time's passed See, this, that's a that's a that's a really good question, but the, I would come back that, to that with another question: with what is solved. So, if we if we think about what is solved today, a murder would be solved when someone's charged with it, when someone's gone to the Crown Prosecution Service, a lawyer has looked here and said, "I believe that there's a realistic chance of prosecution in this case," and then it will be charged, and then it will be classed as solved. That's how murders are solved today. Would we ever reach a stage where we could go with the evidence that's available to a lawyer and say, I've got evidence against this particular person that, and it would make a jury sure of their guilt? I think not. I don't think we can ever, with the evidence that's available, what I do in the book is I look at, I try and cut through all the, all, all, all the, all the surrounding, I'm going to use the word crap because there's so much around Jack the Ripper that gets, and, and and it's not evidence, it's people's theories, it's conjecture. Actual evidence, when you boil it down, there's not an awful lot. It comes from a few witnesses who saw the victims with men or a man prior to the murders. So we're talking about descriptions, essentially, is is the, the evidence in the case. Are those alone going to be enough to prove somebody did this, carried out this murder? I think not. So then we have to really think about well what 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 when we say solved what what do we think and for me what I be, what I believe is that it has to come down to a personal decision it has to come down to a personal um I've I've considered the facts I've considered the evidence against a particular suspect and just as importantly I've considered why that person wouldn't have been the suspect because I think sometimes when we look at the books that get written that, that are called like the suspects books that focus in on one person what they're essentially doing is they're presenting evidence for the prosecution. So they're saying, this is, these are the reasons why I believe this man was Jack the Ripper. What they don't then do is 
present the evidence for the defence and say, but counter to what I believe, these are the reasons why he, he probably wasn't Jack the Ripper. They don't, they ignore that. So what you end up with is imagine if that was in a trial t- today, you wouldn't just have pr- evidence for the prosecution and then leave it there because what you'd end up with is a huge amount of people convicted who are innocent. Um, because I've been in many, many murder trials. At the end of the prosecution case, you think, oh, great, we've got them. And then the defence put their case and you think, well, actually, it's not not quite as clear as we thought. So for me, if if somebody wants to approach this properly and come up with a, 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 a suspect that is believable and you personally are happy that it's him, you need to consider both sides. And after that, if you've done that and you, and you still think, yeah, this is Jack the Ripper, great. I think that's that, that's the best we can reach. Yeah, because most of your evidence, as you say, is based on witness testimony. So the way you've structured it is going through the point of view of various different witnesses in each of the cases. And then at the end, you go into what the investigation would have been like then, what it would be like now. And it's very granular in breaking it down, which is what your first book was like. For anyone that hasn't read one of Steve's books, I mentioned the first time you came on that your book was almost like a textbook or a how-to guide in how investigations work, murder investigations, because ordinarily with books, whether it's Jack the Ripper or some other infamous killer, it's typically narrative-driven and it's a story and it tries to almost in a way sensationalize some aspects of it to make it more appealing to the reader. What Mm. I like about yours is that it's more broken down and... It's, it's on a lower level than an overview, which might be overwhelming for some, but for me, I absolutely love it. I just want to know if that writing style comes naturally to you. Was there ever a temptation to write it more as a story or are you dead set on, because you break it down into like mini sections, mini paragraphs, mm. so you, you can read a bit, put it down, you can come back to it. Yeah, so it's two, two things really. So first off, where what one of the things that was important to me was um i i wanted people to understand not, not, that sounds patronizing but i, I wanted to store the, the the book to be clear that um what we know about the case and what went on comes from real people and they were just going about their normal lives and they happened to get caught up in in this whole affair of witnessing a murder or the lead up to it or the aftermath so I wanted. To, so the way I've written it is a first-person narrative. So it's it's as if they're telling you the story, and that was important to me for two two reasons. One one one, it makes it more real and it makes you understand that this is people, and also as well, every other Jack the Ripper book that I've read, they're just telling you what went on, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want it just to be me telling you what went on. So each each of the murders is told from the perspective of the witnesses who tended the inquests and gave their evidence so what they're saying is their evidence but i'm i'm relating it so it's 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 as, it's as if it's it's almost historical fiction it's it's it, and it gives a flavor of what it was like going on um what what it was like in victorian london at that time and also try and give a little bit of personality to each of the people so that you you understand the different people uh, that was really important to me and then the rest of it is I suppose in, in many ways I write how my brain works. So mm-hmm. each murder will have important aspects to it. So I want to I want to write about what that important aspect is, and then move on to the next bit, then move on to the next bit. So that's why it, it's it's in small chunks. 
I know it's a style that not everybody likes, but I get the vast majority of the feedback I get is people like that because it's it's easy to follow and they understand it and it breaks it down in a way that probably people haven't seen before. I think it offers an insight into how the mind of a murder investigation team detective works because when you're reading a book, it's very easy to get so caught up in the story that you're not actually thinking about the decision-making process. You're not thinking about how you got from A to B. Whereas with your approach, yeah, I don't have the experience or the knowledge that you have, but I, it's the closest thing to it. Yeah, it's, it's as close as you can get without actually having those skills. I'm glad you said that because that's that's what I'm trying to get across. So what I, what I want is by the time someone's finished reading the book, they not only because they you don't have to know about Jack the Ripper to read it. By the end of the end of it, you'll know everything you need to know about Jack the Ripper's crimes. But also as well to to have their own opinion on well, did it work? What should they have done different? Um, how and and an understanding of how we would do it now. Um, yeah, so that, that's important to me. So I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that. I was kind of, I've not finished the book, like I've said, but I did read the acknowledgements at the back. I sort of like to read, I read the front and then the back <laughs> and then the ch chunk in the middle as and when I can. Just with regards to who you were thanking with the research and stuff. So you got the National Crime Agency. Um, Pippa Gregory is a, a key sort of reference that you've acknowledged in there. I'm coming on to how difficult it was to research because a lot of the information does come from the witness testimony is part of the inquiry. A lot of the post-mortem stuff comes directly either from the newspapers or from the trial because it mm. wasn't like you did a post-mortem with a proper forensic pathologist. They had a report that you could read. How yeah. difficult was the research given how long ago it was? It, 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 it was actually pretty easy because some fantastic researchers have done all the work for me. So all I had to do was look at the research and there isn't there, there might be some other new bits that will come out potentially some paperwork might turn up that's been lost or something but ev everything associated with the jack the ripper investigation has been poured over and and there are some fantastic books that just lay out the facts they they're not they're not they're not trying to sensationalize it or create a story they're just they're just laying down the facts of this is what this is what a witness saw this is what the evidence they gave at court these are the police reports at the time and what they say and what that allowed me to do is just sit down, draw out the evidence, and then um, look at it from a, uh, an investigator's point of view of what's important, what would constitute evidence today, how would I interpret that? Um, so that's why I thank some people that have written some fantastic books. Um, like I say, they literally did that work for me, the, the research side. Can we do a little thought experiment here it's kind of going through i think it's the first chapter of the book so obviously without too many spoilers let's just go through the first scenario so there was two women sex workers i think it was in the first chapter and mm. they'd, they'd met what they said were two people in the army one was a private i think one was a, a corporal or, or a sergeant yeah so it's, it's martha tabram um yeah martha tabram and, yeah um and pearly pole is that was it yeah that, that she's affectionately known so let's, long story short, Martha is found in, in like a, some kind of apartment building near the stairs, mm. covered, covered in blood. She's been murdered. If we can briefly, let's do it from both sides. So the approach that Abilene would have had back then versus the approach you would have now. Keep it high level. You don't have to go into mm. too much detail. Let's start with back then. What would have happened when he arrived at the scene? So this is really interesting because 
because this is one of the early murders, one of the things that I saw, I saw, and I, I, I can read from all the reports and everything, is the progression that was made through the police investigation. They started off actually pretty poorly when it comes to investigating murders, and by the seventh murder of Mary Jane Kelly, it was like stark contrast between Martha and Mary, because Martha was the first crime scene. So the detectives investigating wouldn't even have seen Martha's body at the crime scene. So what happened was uniformed police officers um, got called there by the, the man that discovered the body. They called a local doctor, and the doctor said for the body to be removed. So by the time investigators were told, even told about the crime, the crime scene had gone, um, which is a huge difference to now when uniform officers are fully trained and they know when there's a dead body, you're essentially what you're doing, you're closing down the scene so nobody can interfere with it. Um, so when the investigators turn up, they've, they, it, it's as it was found. Nothing's been changed. Unless, of course, the victim needs um, first aid med- medical emergency treatment, then it's different. Um, but if the victim is dead, as, as Martha clearly was, the body wouldn't be touched, it wouldn't be moved. And that's a big difference. So Abilene actually was didn't investigate this one at first because what what was the difference then is so Abilene was at Scotland Yard and Scotland Yard didn't investigate all murders some of them would be investigated locally so it was it was a, a local detective was investigating it a, a, a detective inspector Edmund Reed and it was only after the third murder once they knew that it was serial killer that Scotland Yard were brought in that Frank uh, Frederick Abilene was brought in it baffles me you know when there was a part where there's a guy walking to work early in the morning. It's about quarter to four or something. And he spots mm. another guy and he's like, oh, you want to see this body down here? And they kind of leave the woman and walk off. And the guy says to him, oh, if I see a policeman on my way to work, I'll I'll let him know. And then he kind of does. There always seems to be a cop at the end of the street, yeah. which, I, which I found. We did never see that these days, would you? No, because they, they had very small beats. So that's um, Polly Ann Nichols' um, murder. And yeah, two two men were walking down the street, um, and they and they come across the body. But they they would have walked this route every morning, and they would have been pretty confident, I think, that they would have passed at least one copper because they, the police officers didn't have radios at the time; they had a whistle and a lantern, so they had to be able to co- communicate with um, colleagues in case something happened, and if they needed to um, needed some assistance. So if you walked their route to work, I, I, I mean, I, I, it's a guess, but I would imagine they probably passed three or four coppers on the way because of the small beats and, the, and, and they would have known that there's a good chance that they would have bumped into one. Yeah. Although interestingly, that copper wasn't that interested. <laughs> he was he was too busy waking people up, which I found is so back in the day in Victorian London, they didn't have alarm clocks, the, the poorer people. Uh, so they had to have different ways of waking up. Some would leave curtains off so the, the, the light would wake them up in the morning that kind of thing but they had knocker uppers and sometimes it was women would go around sometimes with a big stick and knock on the window um, others had pea shooters or they'd shoot something at the window but also coppers did it police officers did it so the police officer they come across was more interested in knocking people up than getting the information that he needed from these two witnesses about the dead body that's funny our times have changed there eh? The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. The uh, the other thing also that I enjoyed about how you've written this is I was always second-guessing these 
third party characters you would bring in so not the witnesses but the people the witnesses would come across so there's one from the point of view of a copper and he's, he's doing his beat and i think it's pissing down and he just can't wait for the night to end he's thinking about hiding in a, a yeah. cafe for a cup of tea or something and he spots this guy a soldier i think yeah and it says oh there's a woman down there with my mate there won't be a minute in my head i'm thinking who is this guy exactly yeah is it is, it, is this jack and then with, also, with, and his mate is his mate is is there a mate yeah is there, there a mate, mate? Has, know, he, has he killed someone and the guy that yeah. went to work and he said you want to see this body down here and i'm thinking oh is that jack <laughs> <laughs> like, where's this going well then but, they just but you, but you know what so um but the, the way i've written it all of those characters that you think about at some point someone somewhere has said that's jack the ripper um there's very few there are very few people involved even frederick abeline that's at one point has been named by some spanish fella that he was jack the ripper so yeah i mean i i, I call it the true tr true crime suspect paradox and what what this is to me is is the difference between detectives and some people who watch true crime is that if a name is mentioned or associated in a case there will be some people that will immediately say that that's the killer with very little evidence, with very little um, reason other than the fact they know them, they're there. And it recently happened in um, the Nicola Bully case, really sad. Her partner, I can't remember if she was married, but her partner um, went on TV and because of the way he reacted, people were immediately, oh, he's killed her. Before they even knew whether it was a murder or an accident or whatever, there were people, and they probably still are, pointing a finger at him. And and I think if you look at any true crime case that generates a lot of interest, anybody that's associated it, at some point, someone will point the finger at them and say they're the killer. And I think Jack the Ripper is like the epitome of that, where every single – people want to solve it, mm. and they can only really go on the names that they've got. They can only go by the names they've heard of. So when you've got millions of people interested in a case, you, you, you will have somebody at some point point the finger at some at one of the witnesses, one of the police officers, etc. You did mention as well that you believe that given the amount of leaflets that were put through the doors, the, the sheer volume of logistic nightmare that would have taken, you sort of took your hat off to that. But you reckon at some point, somewhere, the true Jack the Ripper's name has been mentioned on a list that's perhaps just slipped through the net, much like Peter Sutcliffe's did during the Yorkshire Ripper inquiry. Yeah, I mean, I mean, no doubt whatsoever. If we were to have every single bit of paperwork that the police generated during that um, investigation, somewhere in there would be the name of Jack the Ripper mentioned at least once. And that's because they spoke to so many people, thousands of people. They were they did an enormous amount of legwork and it would have generated so many names. And there's the, the likelihood is that Jack the Ripper was connected quite strongly to the area of Whitechapel, be that he lived there, he worked there, or whatever. So there's no doubt at some point a police officer would have spoken to him because they spoke to everybody. Um but what what you wouldn't be able to do, I don't think, is to be able to say for sure that oh yeah that's Jack the Ripper you would have all these names and what would differentiate him from anybody else I don't know but but you mentioned Peter Sutcliffe and that that is a there's an absolute example of why I believe that's true so when he was identified it was established that he'd been stopped nine times and interviewed nine times by the police 
It was in the paperwork there. There was even there was even a friend had written in and said that I believe the Yorkshire Ripper is Peter Sutcliffe, but it was a piece of paper that sort of got missed. Mm. Um, and when you're generating that amount of information and you don't have, like we do now, computers to keep on top of it, to cross-reference these different bits of information, to pick out, there might be just a, a throwaway comment in a, in, a, in, a, in someone's statement that might mean nothing on its own. But when you load it onto a computer and you match it up with others, it suddenly becomes more important. And they didn't have that. So with the thousands and thousands of bits of information they were generating, no systems in place, even in even in the 1970s with the Yorkshire Ripper, they developed systems to try and keep on top of this, but they were just overwhelmed by the amount of information. So I've no doubt that back then they would have had his name, but they just didn't know it. Speaking of those leaflets I mentioned, there's a section in there where you, you're not necessarily critiquing it, but you're sort of offering ways how it could have been improved. Hmm. And and then at the end, I'm a visual person. So when I read something, I find it hard to picture it. But then you did put the picture in, which I appreciated, of right. the, the leaflet that you would have put in. So murder, big red letters at the top to get the reader's attention, contact details. You had the image it wouldn't be nowadays as you say the only image you had yeah. was was an autopsy image of um was that was that Polly Nichols that one that one was Polly Nichols yes think, it was I think, yeah, I think it was, it was. yeah that's, it that's was. the chapter I've, I've just yeah. read yeah whereas the original leaflet didn't have an image on there makes sense but then the information was quite limited and it also put an assumption that that this was a local man they were looking for which kind yeah. of prevented anything out of the local area it said something about anyone that you have concerns about right it wasn't suspicions yeah who do you think anything anyone who's suspicion has fallen upon or something along those which is like anyone who you think really weird language yeah yeah, so what, what I've tried to do is so when you see those murder leaf these these appeal leaflets that the police get together they're not everything in there isn't there by accident it's all it's all got a purpose so the first thing you want to do when you have a leaflet is for someone to look at it and that's why it's in big red letters murder so it draws someone's attention then you have to make it clear what has gone on then you have to ask them a question that they can positively answer i.e were you in the area at the time did you see anything that kind of thing and then you have to give them away in order for them to be able to pass information on to you so it's like look at me this has gone on can you answer yes to any of these questions if so contact us here that's all you're saying and that's what those leaflets say so what i'm doing is saying well we we know now years and years later from trial and error from input from advertising agencies whatever it is this is how we put our leaflets out in order to get the information back. How did that compare to back then? And it's not it's not me digging them out and saying, look how rubbish they are. It's just out of interest. And and yeah, so they they kind of they kind of follow it, but then lose it a little bit towards the end when they're up what it's the question they're asking people and and it's so vague that you're like, well, I don't I'm not, I don't quite know what you mean. Is there any kind of sign-off with leaflets? So let's say you have to design one, or maybe an agency does. Does that have to get signed off, or can you just whip on up and print them out? How does it work? Yeah, we, it's up to the officers to do it. If you're in a high, um, uh, if it, certainly in murders with a high profile, it, it would go via the um, press press bureau at Scotland Yard. So you would knock them up, 
send them to them and they would look at it and and say well actually we think maybe this or that because they've had the training so the leaflets so when you put the murder appeal leaflets out they're just an extension of the appeals that go out on the onto the news um so your, your bbc app when the, when the police put a, a statement out that's thought of they're not just putting words out they're thinking about what they're going to do and the leaflets are an extension of that and then when the families come on and do press conferences all of it's thought out every, every so you every part of a murder investigation would have a strategy written for it and it's when you see like luther on the tv the detective chief inspector running around doing all this crazy violent sexy stuff that's so far removed from what the senior officers on a murder investigation actually do because what they what they'll be doing is writing strategies about everything from what, what houses you go knocking on what cctv you collect um, how you deal with witnesses, how you deal with a family. Every single strand of a murder investigation has a strategy, and that includes the media strategy. So you're thinking about what, because what, it's essentially what you're doing, you're putting out information to get information back. So you have to carefully think about what information you're putting out, because you don't want to put too much. You don't want to taint witnesses, but you need to give enough to be able to jog a person's memory or make them think, oh, actually, yeah, I need to, I need to um, call the police because that I saw that or, or whatever. So, so, so a lot of thought goes into it, and so even even those leaflets, an awful lot of thought goes into them before they're published. How accurate are shows such as Luther, Line of Duty, uh, what's the other one, Happy Valley up here? How mm. accurate are those shows when it comes to portraying the process accurately to the general viewer? It varies, but it varies from not very to completely not accurate. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So the actual the actual process of investigating a murder is not sexy. It's about being meticulous, crossing all your T's, dotting all your I's. It's a huge amount of a huge amount of paperwork in order to, that um every everything you do when you're investigating a crime and m- murder's no different, is with an eye on court. So you know whatever you're doing in terms of talking to witnesses and interviewing suspects, watching CCTV, at some point you're going to go to court, you're going to go to a trial, and there's going to be a defence barrister there whose job it is is to try and undermine your case. So what you if you come into it with doing the half-hearted job, you don't do everything properly, by the time you go to court and you haven't done your paperwork properly, you haven't considered how you speak to witnesses and promises you make them, et cetera. If it all falls apart there because you haven't done a good job or the proper job, then there's no point in doing it in the first place. So when you're doing, when you're carrying out a murder investigation, it's an awful lot of paperwork and policy decisions and um, decision-making and strategies. And that doesn't get portrayed on telly because it's dull. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Who wants to see Luther in an office writing, writing a strategy for four hours? you'd much rather see him running about having a fight with a suspect. And that's why, because it's entertainment and I fully get it. I fully understand why they do it because the reality would, wouldn't make good TV. Yeah. Not good uh, mainstream TV anyway. Maybe on like yeah. Ch- channel yeah. seven. You, you might tune in, Stu, but not, most people wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk to me about the importance of photography in a murder investigation? Because you were quite critical of the lack of it in the 1888 murders with Jack the Ripper. Can you just talk to me about the importance of that? Yeah, so what I didn't want to do when I when I wrote this book is be like this bloke coming after, after years later, sort of... Oh, look at these! Aren't, aren't they stupid? Type thing. I, I, I don't want to be overcritical, and if I, if I am critical, it's because of um, 
opportunities they had available to them they didn't that they didn't use so for instance like fingerprints they, they didn't have fingerprints finger the first conviction for fingerprints in the uk was in 1902 so you can't criticize them for not using that but photography had been around for for decades and they didn't use it properly and they didn't start using it until um mary jane kelly's murder which was the seventh of these 11 murders so they would go to a crime scene and they wouldn't photograph it and that what that resulted in is years and years later, and I'm sure it would have been at the same t- at the time as well. You're not 100% of what the crime scene was. What, what position was the body in? Where were items of the victim found? What where was the blood? What you're using is descriptions from witnesses, and that's very subjective. And how good were they describing? How good are they recalling? Did did they draw a plan? Did they draw a map? Did they did they write down exactly? What, or, or are they remembering it later on? Whereas if you take a photograph of a scene, what we understand now, and it's for two 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 important reasons why we take photography at murder scenes. First one is to for the integrity. So there's no doubt where the body was found, the position of the victim, the way their hands were, where a murder weapon was, where blood was. No one later on, especially at court, the defence, can dispute what was where. But also as well, not many people are going to get to go to the crime scene. There are going to be a few investigators, some of the first responders, um, forensic officers, etc. But there are going to be many, many more people that need to understand what was there, like particularly investigators, maybe witnesses, and really importantly, court. So the jury, the judge, everybody needs to know exactly what that crime scene was. And that's where photography is used. And so so for me, that's where I, I probably the most well, I, I was critical in two main ways, I think. I was really critical with some of the senior senior officers and the decisions they made. Um, but the investigators themselves, for me, it was the photography, and purely because it was available to them and they didn't think it would be important when actually it was quite obvious, really, you should take a photograph. And it, and it was heartening to see by the time they get to Mary Jane Kelly's murder, they did start doing that. Um, and that, that's really important that they they made that progress. So we briefly touched upon the letters earlier. People might know them as the From Hell letters. Mm. There's the movie From Hell. There was start. I think the first letter on at least one was From Hell, right? Signed off Jack the Ripper. Yeah. How important are they with regards to being pieces of evidence? But also, are we convinced that those were definitely written by the person who we think committed these murders? Because... A similar thing happened again in the Sutcliffe case, but it wasn't mm. written by Sutcliffe. It was written by Wearside Jack. So are we convinced that those were written by the killer? And if we are, how important are they towards the investigation, knowing who he was? Yeah. So, I mean, so there's a few things there. First off, there's nothing to say all the letters were written by the same person because they were sent to different people in different handwriting. So the chances are the ones that certainly the ones I've seen were written by different people. Um, were they from the killer? Well, there was one that had um, a piece of what, a kidney in it. it, was probably human kidney, which happened soon after a one of the murders where a woman's kidney was taken. So for me, if one of them was to have been written by Jack the Ripper, that was probably more likely. Um, are we ever going to know? Absolutely not. Is it important to the investigation? Now it's not it's not going to help us solve it. So possibly not now. At the time it would have been hugely important. But to me, their importance goes beyond 
the crime in terms of identifying the killer, etc. The importance of the letters is that is that that is where we got the name Jack the Ripper. So without those letters, we probably wouldn't we, we wouldn't be talking about this now. So they're really really important to the overall um, case. But now looking back, I don't I don't place much importance on them. Firstly, because we can't we can't ever be sure who who wrote them, and two, even even if they were written by the killer, they're not going to help us identify who he was. So the next logical question I can ask you, Steve, is who was Jack the Ripper? <laughs> <laughs> the sixty-four thousand dollar question, isn't it? Um, so what what the way I try to approach this is is use a modern day approach. We call it TIE. It's it, it stands for Trace, um, Investigate, Evaluate, and it's a method of of eliminating people in an inquiry. And the people would generally would generate a list. And that list would include people like those that found the body, those were in the area at the time, people that had an animosity towards the victim, people that used a similar MO in the area, that kind of thing. So you're generating a list. And the and the theory is the killer should be on it. And you then apply elimination process. For instance, they were they were elsewhere at the time, they didn't fit the description. That if we had DNA, they don't match the DNA. That so you'd you'd you'd, you'd come together with elimination criteria. You can knock people off, and the theory is you end up with a killer or only a few people. Then you can do extra work around them. For instance, arrests, surveillance, searching the houses, that kind of thing. So I've applied that process to the most popular using my bunny ears um, suspects, and I have managed to get it down to two. And there's one of those that I favour more than the other. Um, but you'd have to read the book to know who they are. Yeah, we won't spoil it. You'll have to read the book. Before we close then, Steve, this is quite a a unique take, the same as your first book was. I'd never read a book like the first book you released, Murder Investigation Team. This is the same, but it's almost like... I'm going... <laughs> I'm going to say when you buy the, you know, the video game, The Sims, right? So you buy The Sims, but then you can buy an expansion pack, like <laughs> City Life or whatever they are nowadays. Right. This is this is like an expansion pack to your murder <laughs> investigation team series. So assuming this does well, which hopefully it does, it's out today, July 20th, as we record. Are there plans to do the same thing for other cases? Possibly, yeah. The thing is, Stu, when you, when, from, I know from my, I'm talking about my own experience here. If you're talking to an author about them writing another book, you need to give them a little bit of space from the one before. Because if you ask me now, <laughs> the last thing I want to do is write a book because I've spent the last year doing it. And I've got to be honest, I, I almost hated it by the end. I just read it so many <laughs> times. I changed this, I changed that. I just needed a break from it. Um, so in a, in a, in a month or two, I might sit down and think, oh, actually I'm ready now to put, put my brain to that. So it's definitely a possibility. Um, I'm not going to say no, but at the moment it's definitely not a yes. Um, so we'll see. Well, one of the things we haven't, we haven't talked about, which I was really, really excited about in this book is, um, so I approached the national crime agency and they are responsible in the UK for providing criminal profiles of Murder, murderers and and people committing um a series of uh, sexual crimes etc and it, it so criminal profiling is 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 a, is a bit of mystique around it but in the uk it's it's really well regulated and there are only three people in the country that can provide criminal profiles to the police and they're all employed by the national crime agency 
And I um, asked one of them, I said, would you mind uh, providing a criminal profile on Jack the Ripper? Because it had never been done in this country. There's one person in the FBI had done it um, in, in the 90s, I think. Um, but in this country, no no criminal profiler, certainly a, a, um, a, a proper qualified one, had provided a criminal profile of Jack the Ripper. So there's a, the the second second chapter, second big chapter, second part two, is um, a lady by the name of P- Pippa Gregory providing the first ever um, criminal profile the National Crime Agency have um, gone public with, and it's about Jack the Ripper. So that that to me that that makes it different to the first book because I've got this input um, from literally one of the country's leading um, experts on, on this subject. So yeah, part two, Jack the Ripper, BIA assessment. I'm assuming that's what it is. Yeah, right? because in the UK, we don't call them criminal profilers. They're known as behavioural investigative advisors. Right. Uh, so she's done, her assessment comes in two parts. It's a crime scene assessment where she looks at the what can she glean from the crime scenes themselves in terms of the behaviour of the victim, behaviour of the suspect, uh, the state of the scene, et cetera, the violence used. And then the next part is called the predictive profile, and that's probably closer to what we associate with a criminal profile. What kind of man was Jack the Ripper? What 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 can we um, use in – because they use academic study and past murders to try and build up a – um, a best guess of of what the person would look like, and she, and she does that as well, which, which I was really, really pleased to be able to have that in the book. So it took you what, like a year to write, given everything you've got going on, family life, work commitments. Where did you find the time to actually write this? Because we mentioned briefly before we started recording, you had a target of like eighty thousand. You got to about one hundred twenty, could have been three hundred thousand yeah. potentially. How did you fit this in within your daily life to actually commit to writing this book? So I'm in a lucky position in that I've retired from the police. So I'm kind of almost semi-retired so I can pick and choose what I do work-wise. But I, this was for certainly for a number of months, this was a full-time job for me. Uh, well, I'll say full-time. It was like the kids going off to school and kids coming back from school, the in-between bit. Yeah. Um, I was spending hours a day researching and writing, et cetera. Um, I, if, if, in all honesty, if I wasn't in this position, I probably wouldn't have been able to have done it because the time the time it takes to, to take in all that information. And as you say, so like they said to me 80,000 words. It turned out to be about 120,000, but I could have doubled that quite easily. And a lot of it was – what 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 especially when it comes to the current murder investigation how we would do it i'd already written about that so i don't want to i want to regurgitate my first book in this one so it's picking mm-hmm. and choosing what would be important to each crime um and if you're a murder investigator and you pick this up you can say well i could have said this i could have said that and like yeah there's lots i could have said but i had to try and pick and choose what what was most important well i'm going to link it in the episode description murder investigation team jack the ripper a 21st century investigation there's the cover for everyone watching it's probably going to be like nothing you've read before as far as this story is concerned it's not only covering the murders but it covers the witnesses who saw the murders how the investigation in theory took place how it would take place now it's got the profile for the first time on jack the ripper 
Very, very detailed book. I'm enjoying it so far, Steve. Thank you again for coming on. Always love. Uh, no, love thank you, mate. I really appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you. No worries. Always lovely to speak to you. And for anyone that does want to buy it, as I say, I'll link this in the description. Please pick up a copy. And until next time, I will see you all later.